Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter number 2. Hebrews chapter number 2. And I'd like to be in reading in verse number 1. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse number, we won't read near as much scripture tonight as we did this morning. Uh, we uh, read quite a bit this morning. But I do want to read uh, the entirety of the chapter. And it's 18 verses. You're, you've been forewarned. Amen. That's my Surgeon General warning. I figure if, if Google can violate every privacy you've got by just saying terms and services... Those are my terms and services, amen? So uh, you've been forewarned, amen, that uh, this is going to take just a minute, but not near as long as it did this morning. Hebrews chapter number 2, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to His own will. For unto the angels hath He not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Now, let me pause and just say this. The Hebrews writer's intention in this is saying that uh, that God has made promise that the world to come would be under subjection of man. He's pointing to the fact that there had to be somebody that could take that role and somebody who would take the governance of the future. And he says this in verse number 8. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Uh, he says this, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. In other words, he fits the criteria. But this is why. For the suffering of death, we see him crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him. You ever heard somebody say, well, that's very becoming. That outfit's very becoming. It's very flattering, very appropriate, very fitting. It became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed, call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. If you were here this morning, you read where we uh, read that. You, you heard where we read that on Isaiah chapter number 9. Verse 14 says this, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. 
For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. Help us to rightly divide the word of truth. And by Christ, may Christ be magnified by everything that's said, Lord. Not just what's said from the pulpit to ears, but what's said in our hearts to you. Uh, Lord, may we have open hearts, humble hearts, as we seek to see your will done in us. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I would remind you that over the past few Sundays, we have been examining this idea and this truth of the incarnation. That's big $10 theologian's word, incarnation. But the Bible describes what the incarnation is in Isaiah chapter 7, verse number 14. It says this, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. In other words, the fact that God would be manifest uh, in flesh. We right now are celebrating this Christmas season. But this Christmas season, it's really not about all the trappings and all the festivities and all the gifts. What it's really about is the miracle of the incarnation. I've given this working definition each time that we've preached. And if you're tired of it, don't worry. You'll have to hear it tonight and once more. Amen. But hopefully it's ground its way into your mind. This would be the definition I'd give that big word incarnation. The eternally existent. Second person of the triune Godhead, that's Jesus, indwelt the sinless body prepared for him by the conception of the Holy Spirit in a virgin's womb. He was born in Bethlehem in the land of Israel and lived a perfect sinless life. He is a hundred percent God as he has always and eternally been. Due to this miraculous entrance into time and humanity, he is also a hundred percent man. This event and ongoing reality constitutes the truth of the incarnation. I think one of the things that's often lost on people is people think when he rose from the dead, he quit being man. But you know, the Bible says this, there's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And he can still be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He is a faithful high priest because of this truth. You say, preacher, what does the incarnation matter to me? You couldn't pray without it. You wouldn't have a high priest without it. You wouldn't have a relationship with God without the incarnation. And so we've made three statements concerning it. The first is that the incarnation is a truth of historical fact. No serious theologian would dispute that Christ lived. And if Christ lived, he must have been born. And uh, if what the Bible records about his life, and by the way, the Bible could not stand as a religious text for uh, these 2,000 years concerning the testimony of the life of Christ if it had been fairy tales. That would have been found out real quick. When there was men walking around that had been there and had seen, I mean, that would have been found out real quick. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would have been discredited real quick. And so if we were to believe the miraculous life of the Lord Jesus then the only rational explanation for it is that he must not have been man. He must have been more than man. 
We don't have to wonder what he was or who he was. The Bible tells us that he was God and is God. So it's a truth of historical fact. Number two, it's a truth of theological force. As we said a moment ago, man, it matters what we believe. Uh, What you believe about the incarnation will inform and affect everything else that you believe. You can't believe right about Calvary if you don't believe right about the incarnation. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, what Calvary is and was is directly informed by what the incarnation was. You see, if he was just a good man, then Calvary was merely the sad and tragic end of a beautiful life. It was merely a martyr dying for a cause. There have been plenty of martyrs die for causes throughout human history. We didn't need a martyr to die for a cause. We needed a Savior to die for sinners. I can be saved and am saved tonight because of what He did when He died on the cross. And it would have been utterly meaningless had He not been God in the flesh. So it is a truth of theological force. We could we could dig in there. I mean, what, what you believe about the incarnation affect what you believe about the resurrection. If He ain't God, how could He raise from the dead? I mean, how could he raise from the dead? It's what Paul says in First in Corinthians chapter number 15. He said, hey, listen, if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised? He said, if Christ is not raised, you're dead in your sins. In other words, it affects what we believe. So it's a truth of theological force. Number three, we have said, it is a truth of practical faith. And we gave just one instance a moment ago. You don't have a high priest at the right hand of God without the incarnation. And it changes our perspective on who God is. Say, preacher, how do I know that God loves me? Because God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If He wasn't the Son of God, God the Son sent from heaven, sent from glory, an expression, witness, and testimony of the love of God, then how would you know that God loves you? If you don't know that God loves you, how can you live this Christian life? And So it is a truth of practical Faith. We've spent the last five services on Sundays looking at this. The first week we looked at Genesis 3.15. The incarnation is a solution to man's fall and man's foe and for man's forgiveness. 1 Timothy 3.16 describes the incarnation as a demonstration of what righteousness and what right behavior <coughs> excuse me, looks like. John chapter number 1 last Sunday morning. We looked at how that the incarnation is a revelation of the person of God the Father to humanity through the testimony and life of the Lord Jesus. You want to know what, what God looks like? Look at Jesus. That's, that was the answer Jesus gave to Philip in John chapter number 14. I, I don't know when it's going to happen. It's coming to a pulpit near you, but I've been, I've been, uh, my heart's been smitten by that, that phrase. He looks at Philip and says, Philip, have I been so long time with you? And yet thou hast not known me. Makes you wonder how you can be with the Lord, but not close to the Lord. With the Lord, but not close to the Lord. Been so long. And he said, you don't even know who I am, Philip. You don't even understand the truth and the reality of what I'm trying to convey. He said this, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. So it's a revelation. Last Sunday night, we talked about Galatians chapter number 4. Talks about the uh, second class standing of Judaistic faith. And Judaism could only ever make a man a servant. It couldn't make him a son. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, Christ said, but the son abideth forever. And then he went on to say, Therefore, if the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And so the nature of the relationship that Old Testament Jews had with the Lord, uh, you say, Preacher, what about New Testament Judaism? There ain't such thing. I'm just going to... 
There ain't such thing. You say, but preacher, there's Jews walking around and they're practicing Judaism. Yeah, Judaism's a cult now. You say, what about New Testament Judaism, preacher? There ain't such a thing. There's Old Testament Judaism. And under Old Testament Judaism, all it could ever make a man was a servant of God. Couldn't make him a son of God. But, hey, listen, I'm glad when the fullness of time was come. God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. What was done, uh, could not be done through the law, was done through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we talked about the incarnation as a liberation. This morning we preached out of Isaiah chapter number 9, and we looked at our coming King and how that is connected to the idea and truth of the incarnation. We considered this thought that the incarnation was in many ways a coronation. The king of all glory, the king of eternity past, the everlasting father, the king of eternity future, uh, entered into his domain whenever that babe was born in Bethlehem. But tonight I want to take a little more personal and practical perspective on the incarnation, not because it's particularly my desire, but because the Hebrews writer does that very thing. He talks, if we were to describe and, and, and talk about these three ideas, a historical fact, a theological force, and, and a practical faith, I, I would maybe say this, that, that, you know, what we preached in Galatians 4 dealt with it being a theological force. You know, it affects what we believe. If the Lord will help us next Sunday morning, uh, we'll preach out of Luke chapter number 2. And that will deal with it as a historical fact. But there's probably been no message we've preached that deals more directly with the idea of practical faith than the passage that we have read this evening. Paul invokes the truth of the incarnation. He says in verse number 9, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. It doesn't mean when he says made that he was created, but rather that he had been higher than the angels and he was made low. He was humble. What we could say was he condescended. How did that take place? Well, verse 14 gives us a little more detail. It says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. In other words, he existed before he was in flesh, but he took part of flesh. He robed himself in flesh. He was manifest in the flesh. And why did he do that concerning you and concerning me? I want to preach to you on this thought tonight. The incarnation viewed as a ministration. You say, what do you mean, preacher? What's a ministration? It's a ministry. To, to have a ministration in your life is for God to dispense to you some grace, some mercy, to minister to you in some way and in some respect. Part of what the church does is it's a ministration to us. It's taking the blessings and the richness and the truth of God and dispensing it in our life. And when we use the term ministry, we're talking about something that on an ongoing basis provides ministration. Well, here in Hebrews chapter number 2, Paul wants us to see the truth of the incarnation as a ministry, as a rescue mission sent to reach and touch the lives of broken humanity. So, preacher, what was the incarnation? Was it the triune God of glory expressing Himself? Yes, it certainly was. 
Was it Him coming to set into motion an entirely new way of men knowing God, an entirely new status to which men's relationship with God could attain? Yes, it absolutely was. Preacher, was it Him fulfilling prophecy and living out the pages of Scripture uh, that He might bear witness and testimony to the truth, authenticity, and veracity of God? Yes, absolutely it was. But don't ever forget this either. It was also God reaching down His hand of mercy to broken men. It was God condescending that He might better minister to the fallen sons of Adam and reach them with His grace and with His mercy. When we read this passage of Scripture, and I love the writings of Paul. You may say, preacher, why would you say that? Because Paul wrote Hebrews. You might not believe that, and that's fine, and there's probably better things for us to fist fight about, to be honest. But if we can't think of nothing and you want to meet me in the parking lot, that'll do. That'll be fine. But I am of the convicted, confirmed opinion that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. One of the things I love about Paul's writings is he was just so practical when he wrote. I know Peter struggled with me. He said, hey, he's got some things that are hard to be understood. And, and there's a lot that Paul wrote that I, I struggled to wrap my mind around. But 90% of the time, Paul's just talking like you're sitting there with him. And he, he's communicating in this very relatable, digestible way. And I love to read the Pauline epistles for that very reason. When we come to this chapter, we find that Paul, in very clear terms, describes three things that Christ came to do when He walked amongst men. There's a lot of debate in society today about why Christ came. Some people would suggest He came uh, merely to instruct men in truth. Uh, He did instruct men in truth, but He came for more than that. Some people would say he came to found a new religious following. Amen. The only trouble is, if that's the truth, uh, he sure didn't do well before he died because they all forsook him at the cross of Calvary. Uh, Some would say he just simply came to do good works. And and Peter says that he went about doing good. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, But I would say this, that the impact of the life of the Lord Jesus has far outpaced since his resurrection what was accomplished during his earthly life in regards to the sheer numerical value of lives changed. And so, in the midst of this debate, can I just throw the Bible's hat into the middle of the ring? And let's take a moment and look at what the Bible says was the reason that he came. And what does it do to affect and change our life? Beginning in verse number 9, the Bible says this, We don't see angels in authority over uh, creation. We don't see angels exalted and and, and, and enthroned. But here's what we do see. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Why was that done? Here's why. That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Preacher, why did he come? I would say this night, number one, he came to die. He came to die. It's interesting when you watch a secular or examine a secular perspective on the Bible. It's probably akin to, I don't know, me trying to give a commentary on ancient Chinese texts. I can say things about it, it just ain't going to make a lot of sense, amen? And when you look at the secular world's perspective, on the truth of the Word of God. As we said a moment ago, there's all sorts of debates about what the ministry of Christ or the life of Christ was all about. 
But you know, we don't have to wonder why he came. The Bible is abundantly clear what the reason was. There are some that would cast Calvary as merely, we said a moment ago, the tragic end to a beautiful life. As the unfortunate close of the life of a religious zealot or some sort of social activist. But that's not what the Bible says about what Calvary was. Do you know that Calvary was not some unfortunate accident? It wasn't just merely man's rebellion getting out of God's hands and producing some ugly event. But rather, when we read the Bible, we find that far from being an accident, far from being an audible, the cross of Calvary was always the destined, apportioned destination of the earthly life of the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) So much so that the book of Revelation calls in the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You can go all the way back to the prophet Isaiah, whom we preached out of this morning, And you can read the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah and hear about that Lamb of God led as a sheep to the slaughter. Uh, Before his shears he was dumb, he opened not his mouth. Uh, You can read about how all we like sheep have gone astray. We've gone everyone to our own way, but the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You can read about how he was bruised for our transgressions. You can read about how he took our stead and took our place on the cross of Calvary. How that we deserve to die in that place. How that we deserve to die for those sins, but instead he took our place. We were the lambs that should have been slain, but he is the Lamb of God took our place. And here's Isaiah uh, some 2,000 years before the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus. I mean, you understand what I'm saying. Isaiah, uh, Isaiah was uh, about as far away from uh, the Lord Jesus as you and I are, historically, just on the other end of it. I mean, there's very uh, much uh, question, dispute, and debate as to the veracity of history that's 2,000 years old. Uh, but imagine how difficult it must be to predict something 2,000 years in the future. I'd be difficult for you and me. It's not difficult for God because He knows the end from the beginning. And Isaiah, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, denotes this truth and reality that He would one day die for our sins. So what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this, that it wasn't just a byproduct, an accident, or an incident, His death. It was the intentional purpose of why He came. He came with the express design to die for you and I. One of the things that we discussed this morning, one of the things that made people nervous in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus is as you come to the close of that year of acclamation, that second year when all men are gathering and and, and sort of, uh, you know, cloistering about Him, He started to talk about how they had to eat His flesh, drink His blood to have some part in Him. But another thing that started to disturb people is He started to talk about how He was going uh, to go up to Jerusalem and die. He started telling His disciples, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to rise again the third day. And over and over again, he would describe how that his earthly ministry would not end in a crown, but rather it would end on a cross. This was greatly disturbing to those that were around him, for it was completely disconsonant with their perspective on who the Messiah was. I, I, I feel a little bogged down and bound up, but I, I, hey, listen, that's why he came. It's not just a byproduct. If you miss that, you've missed everything. We see that he came to die. Notice three thoughts that are contained here. Number one, notice the inclusion in his death. Who did he die for? Verse number nine says this. I don't know what a Calvinist does with this. Deny it, I guess. That he 
by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. You know, can I tell you a blessed truth? You say, preacher, when he came, the incarnation, it ain't got nothing to do with me. Sure it does. He came to die for you. That's why he came. So, preacher, the incarnation don't affect my life. Sure it does. He came to die for you. He didn't come just to die for those that he knew would receive him. Uh, by the way, that's a distinctly human perspective. You or I would have done that. <laughs> but he didn't do that. Uh, he, he poured out his soul unto God that he might uh, be numbered with the transgressors and die in their stead. He was indiscriminate in who he died for. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. that Whosoever believed in him should not perish but of everlasting life. And here's the truth we gain from the incarnation. He came and walked as a man that he might die for all men. He tasted death not just for some, but for all men. We see the inclusion in his death. Notice the salvation through his death. Man, I love this. Verse 10, for it became him. We made note of this as we were reading our text, but don't let that word became trip you up there. We use that all the time, or at least we used to. Uh, we, we would talk about someone, we'd say that, that, that outfit is very becoming of you. That, that jewelry is very becoming of you. I looked at Fred before the service start, and I said, that shirt jacket you're wearing, Fred, it's very becoming of you, you know? And uh, what we mean is it's appropriate, it's fitting, it's flattering, it's, it's preferential. And here's what it says. Here's what became him. It became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory. I'm one of those sons, by the way. In bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. A lot of times people get hung up on that word became there and then others get hung up on that word perfect. But here's what the uh, writer of Hebrews is denoting. He's not talking about moral perfection. Jesus didn't need to be morally cleansed or morally rectified. That's the reason, by the way, that whenever he comes to the River Jordan to be baptized of John the Baptist, that he looks at, at uh, John looks at Jesus and says, uh, me baptize you. He said, I have need to be baptized of you. Jesus says, suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this, that when it describes the perfection, he was made perfect. It's not saying he was made morally spotless, but rather, let me use this terminology. He was credentialed through his sufferings. You think about what credentials are. Some of y'all that have worked jobs, (laughs) you know what credentials are, right? You go and sit down in a job interview, they want to know what your credentials are, Ken. They want to know, have you flipped burgers before? Has there ever been a thing you've done in your life, you know? Have you, you ever changed tire? You know, I mean, whatever it is, they want to know your credentials. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Uh, there's people that might not have the credentials that might be able to do the job. What are the credentials about? They're about easing the mind of the prospective employer that you have the wherewithal to get the job done. Now, what does the Bible mean when it says it made him perfect through suffering? It does not mean that he was morally stained or that he was unrighteous and he was made morally righteous. But rather what it's saying is that these sons that would come unto him uh, in order to receive him to become the sons of God and the sons of glory, they would have to have something upon which to be able to hang their faith. And that when they came to him, they would have to be able to have confidence in him that he could and had done the job of defeating death. I would say this to you tonight. 
the salvation he has, it's, it's not just, it's not just provided, it's provable. It's provable. He has proven. He's the captain of our salvation. You say, preacher, can he defeat sin, hell, and death? He's done it before. He's done it before. We come to him and, and say, now, I'm a sinner. I need something done about my sins. Can he say with credentials behind him, son, I can help you. I've defeated sin before. We come to him and say, I, I, I'm terrified of death. Death has its grip around me. I need help. And we look at him and we say, can you handle death? He can say, oh, yes. Oh, yes, I can handle death. I've handled death before. You say, uh, we go to him, preacher, I, I, you know, I'm terrified. I don't want to die in my sins. I don't want to die and go to hell. Does he have the ability to save me or redeem me or keep me from hell? Well, when we read about what happened in the time betwixt his death and his resurrection, you know what we find that he did? He descended in the lower parts of the earth and he led captivity captive. Uh, they didn't catch him at the door. He had the authority. He has the keys of, of hell and of death. He has the authority. and He has the right to forgive a man of his sins. He's, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And as such, we could say this, the salvation that He provided through His death is not merely the pardon of sins, but it is the provable and precious life that He provides through His death on the cross of Calvary. And it's the confidence that we carry that he can keep his word. I see the inclusion in his death and the salvation through his death. But notice then with me the association of his death. What happens when a man puts his faith in this reality and truth of the crucifixion? Well, it says this in verse number 11. For both he that sanctifieth, that's the Lord Jesus. And they who are sanctified, that's you and I, are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. What is the Hebrews writer trying to distinguish here? Well, he's trying to show that there is a pattern. That if we'll put our faith in him, he'll associate with us. And How do we do that? Well, we do that by putting our trust in him and his death on the cross of Calvary. Being born again, becoming children of God. And then when we do that, he's content to associate with us. He'll say, like Isaiah of old did, Behold, I and the children which God hath given me. In other words, denoting a connectedness, an association, a fellowship and relationship with each other. You say, preacher, what was God doing when he robed himself in flesh and came to this earth? Well, he came to die. And in that death... He sought to do three things. He sought to include us in regards to our sin-fallen condition and rectify our lost state. He sought likewise to provide for us a salvation that we could not only partake in, but have confidence in. That we could look to Him and trust that He has the wherewithal to forgive a man, redeem a man, and keep a man saved. And He's proven Himself up to the task in every way. And then that he, by robing himself in flesh, might identify himself with humanity. Not that, not that he might remain abased, but rather that we might be exalted through our association with him. A wonder of wonders. My unrighteousness didn't make him unrighteous. Rather, his righteousness made me righteous. Both he that sanctify and they which are sanctified are both of one. 
I didn't stain Him, but rather He cleansed me. Now I'm associated with Him. So He came to die. Notice the second thing tonight, verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also Himself likewise took part of the same. That through death He might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We could say this, that the first point he came to die was that he might take sinners and make them sons of God. But the second thing that the Hebrews writer notices is something that was then done for those children of God through his incarnation. Can I tell you, hey, listen, he just gets better every day. If you think that the best you've ever known of him was the day you got born again, I'm excited to inform you that if you'll walk with him and if you'll stay close to him, it ain't that he gets better. He's as good as he's always been. We just get to knowing it better. We get closer to him. And the Hebrews writer wants us to understand that the impact of that incarnation did not end in the reality of the cross of Calvary, but that there are outflowing blessings that come from that that affect our life. What are those things vested in? What did he do or what did he come to do? Well, there's one phrase we could notice in verse 14 that that summarizes it. He also himself likewise took part of the same. Why did he do that? That through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Preacher, why did he come and what does it mean to me? Well, I'd say, number one, he came to die. You're included in that death. He died for you. And you can partake in that death and you can have confidence in him. He's a perfect captain of our salvation. He's fit to lead us. Amen. And if you do, you'll be associated with him and given a new standing with God. But I'd say, number two, tonight he came to destroy you say, now wait a minute, preacher. He didn't come to destroy. He came to do good and loving and pleasant and, and, and happy things. Well, maybe some Jesus, but not the Jesus of the Bible. <laughs> he said, I didn't come to give peace on the earth, but a sword. And while I would recognize that the message of love thy neighbor, which is a biblical message, by the way, uh, it certainly calls us and commands us to a life of, of love and compassion biblically defined. Certainly we could say this, that as much as the Lord Jesus came to build some things, He also came to tear some things down. He didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. But you know, later on, Paul talks about the law and he says, if I build again the things which I've destroyed. In other words, he didn't come to destroy the law as an ideal necessarily. He came to fulfill it, but in that fulfillment, it tore down that old system and replaced it with a new and better way. The Old Testament was done and a New Testament was instituted on the death of the testator upon his death for you and for I. And when he came to this earth, you say, preacher, he came to put broken pieces together. Yeah, that's true. But there's also some things that he came to destroy as well. And namely, here in our passage, he came to destroy him that had the power of death. You say, preacher, who is that? Ain't your mother-in-law. It's the devil. Amen. Unless your mother... Well, no, let's not. Just preach. Amen. Just stay in your Bible, Toby. Just preach that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. 
In other words, he came to destroy Satan's spell over humanity. The spell that Satan had over humanity was not a servitude of love and devotion, but rather one of fear and a bondage. But the Lord Jesus, he came that he might destroy him that had the power of death. What do we find here in our passage? Notice three things. I like this. Think about verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. In other words, that's the state in which we live. Say, preacher, I'm born again. I'm a Christian. That's true. And you're still robed in flesh. And blood still courses through your veins. Your fallen nature is as much a part of you today as it was before you got born again. You still have a fallen nature. You still have a fallen nature. All of us still have a fallen nature. You say, but preacher, I'm saved. But your fallen nature ain't. That's why God's going to have to transform it one day. Your soul is saved. Your standing before God is saved. You are positionally righteous before God. But by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Why is that? Because flesh can't be justified. It can't be sanctified. The rotten part of you is as rotten as it ever was. And so our flesh is still what it was at one time. And we live in that state. And one of the afflictions we have as a result of that is that Satan is able to prey upon us. But notice what happened. He also, the Lord Jesus, himself likewise, took part of the same. Now, it's not to suggest that he had a fallen nature like you and I, but it is to suggest that you and I have a certain battlefield upon which we fight the devil. And here's what he did. He stepped onto the field. He stepped into our stead. We find a crystal example of this in Luke chapter number 4, whenever the Lord Jesus is tempted of the devil. And the Bible tells us, now this is, I mean, he's God, you understand. Uh, You understand that the devil only exists as a being because he was spoken into existence by the one whom he's trying to tempt. He was not the devil at that time. He was Lucifer. But all things were created by him. That must include all things. And the devil is trying to tempt the Lord Jesus. He is the God of all creation. He spoke him into existence. And like your mama probably said to you, he could have took him out of existence. Amen. But he did not do this. Instead, you know what you'll find that he did? You'll find that every time the devil came and tempted him, he answered him with the very same tool and weapon that you and I as New Testament believers are equipped with, the Word of God. He fought him with the Word of God. By the way, he didn't rebuke him. He didn't declare him away. He didn't, uh, he, he didn't try to speak magic words over him. He spoke the Bible to him. Why is that? Not because the Bible has some sort of hocus-pocus power, but because its truth is true. And what he was speaking to and, and, and speaking about was that he did not need to yield to the temptation of Satan because what he had in his father was more satisfying than what he could have gained in what Satan offered. And three separate times he replies and answers in the truth of the word of God. He didn't have to do that, but he did that. Why? So that you and I might understand and know that there is a path to resist the temptation of Satan in our life. Likewise, I would say this tonight, not only in that practical sense, but in a positional sense, this is true as well. For the chief weapon in Satan's arsenal is the fear of death. That's what it says in verse 15. Deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. There's a very interesting phrase used in verse 14. Back up and look at it. It says, 
that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. What does that mean? Satan has the power of death. Does that mean that death is under his domain and jurisdiction? You say, well, you know, preacher, I mean, he's the devil. Surely he controls death. No. In fact, when we read in the Word of God, we find that he decidedly does not control death. He can't kill indiscriminately. So, preacher, how do you know that? Because you and I are alive. He'd kill every one of us if he could. He wanted to kill Job. God said, no, I won't allow it. You see, it's not the devil that has power over life and death. God has power over life and death. So what does it mean when it says that the devil had power of death? Remember, Paul describes this in the book of Romans. says that the, uh, the sting of sin is death. The strength of sin is the law. In other words, the devil could terrorize humanity regarding the prospect of death because they in their lost condition had right reason to fear death. And so he used death and weaponized death as a tool of subjugation. You wonder where these politicians learned it. He's been doing it a long time. Making men think that fear of death was more important than love of life and then living the life that God has allowed us to have. And so he used death as a cudgel, as a weapon over them. But you know something interesting? Just as whenever he, in Luke chapter number 4, was tempted of the devil and responded in the same fashion, the same way, that you and I can through the uh, tool of the Word of God, through the weapon of the sword of the Spirit. So likewise, when He robed Himself in flesh, here's what He did. He took part of death. He entered into death's domain. That through death, He might destroy him that had the power of death. Uh, One of my favorite passages in the book of Acts It's when a man says this, Peter is speaking, giving testimony about the risen Lord. And he talks about how he was raised from the dead. And he uses this phrase. He said he was raised from the dead because he was not able to be holden of it. Death wrapped its arms around him and couldn't hold on to him. Had no jurisdiction over him. Why is that? Because he wasn't a sinner. Had no jurisdiction when his righteousness had exhausted the wrath of God and extinguished the sin of man's debt. Death had no more hold on him, had no more right to him, and had to just let him go. He could not be holden up. And here's what he did. He came and he braved the darkness of death. He went into the depths. He took, I like what one old commentator, William Muncie, used to say in a sermon he had on hell, said that he went down into death's domain, uh, said that he took his crown, he broke his scepter, he uh, tied him to his chariot wheels and rode back to heaven, a victor with the enemy being conquered. He entered into death, but he didn't stay dead. By the power of God, he was raised and came out the other side of death. And ever since then, believers, by faith in the reality and truth of the resurrection, have been able to look at death uh, not as a not as a period, but as a comma, not as the end, but as a doorway. Death, which has held such fear throughout all of human history. Now you and I, hey, listen, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saint. You say, preacher, are, are you excited to die? Well, I'm not waiting for the next bus, amen. But I would say this: when the time comes. I'll have nothing to fear. If I fear, it'll be irrational. Because based on the reality of the risen Savior, death has become God's doorman. 
and has lost his dominion. And when that happened, boy, that robbed the devil of a lot of his power and ability. Not over the lost, for the lost still fear death. And by the way, rightly they should. But it lost his sway and power over the people of God. And this is why Christ made the statement. He says, you ought not fear man that can destroy the body, but you ought to fear God which can destroy the body and then afterwards cast the soul into hell. He says this, that there's worse things than dying. And you and I as believers, death doesn't get to hold that control and that sway over us. If we allow it, it's not because we must, it's because we've allowed it to. I'd say it this way. He stepped on the field and he slew the foe and he shattered our fear. He addressed and dealt with death head on. Why did he come, preacher? Well, he came to die, number one. He came that by the grace of God he should taste death for every man. Number two, he came to destroy. He took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. But then there's another reason. The Bible says in verse 16, I'll mention this and be done, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels. A lot of focus on angels today. A lot of focus on angels. And I believe angels are real. I believe they exist. But my focus isn't on them. Why is that, preacher? Because I've got Jesus. And he, He's better than the angels. He's better than the angels. Preacher, aren't there angels? Well, I'm, I'm sure there are. I guess there are. Maybe you got one. Maybe I got one. Maybe everybody's got one. The only person I'm convinced don't have one is the University of Tennessee footballer. We would have been in that playoff. Amen. So I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. But I know this. My focus ain't on them. I got something better than an angel. I've got a savior. He took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in other words, this is why, in all things, it behooved him. In other words, it benefited him. That's what it means. That's what the word behooved means. You you learned a new word used at work tomorrow morning. It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Why? Why did it behoove him? Why was it important? Why did it benefit him to be robed in flesh? Here's why. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Preacher, why did he come? Why did he come? Why was he robed in flesh? How's it a ministry to me? Well, he came and he died. You're included in that death. There's a faithful salvation that comes from that death. And there's a grand association that comes through that death. He came to destroy. He stepped on the field, robed himself in flesh, took your place in that battle, and fought and won a battle that you, in and of your strength, could not win. In doing so, he slew the foe, and he shattered the fear and the spell that Satan had over mankind. But then I'd say this tonight. Here's why he came. He came to draw men closer. Remember, he's talking about the benefit to the child of God. And it begins with the fact that we can be saved. The first great glorious thing that God did in your life is He saved you. If He has not saved you, if you've not been born again, whatever small blessings you may be able to enumerate are meaningless relative to that great need of salvation. But then He didn't just do that. He freed us from the fear of death. But then He didn't just do that. You know what he did? You say, preacher, what's Jesus doing right now? Where's Jesus at? He's not in a manger in Bethlehem. He's not on a cross or on some Catholic's idol. So where is he? Well, the Bible says this, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And that he ever liveth to make intercession for you and for I. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, functioning as our high priest. Part of the reason he was incarnate 
is that he might, there again we'll use this word, be credentialed in the office of being a high priest. Notice there's three things mentioned here that were secured, we might say, or were bolstered through the incarnation. The first is his compassion on the people. It says, wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Why? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. It's interesting. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But, you know, Paul's going to go on to describe later in Hebrews chapter number 5 that part of the reason he was made flesh is because men were called, men were called, human beings were called to the priesthood. And that he likewise, as a human being, had to be called to that priesthood. And it wasn't after the order of Aaron and of Levi in the Old Testament, but it was after the order of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And I encourage you, spend your own time digging in and reading it. But here's what I want you to understand. When it says that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest, he was merciful before he was ever robed in flesh. He was faithful before he was ever robed in flesh. But being robed in flesh did two things for us. One, as a human being, it qualified him for the role of the priesthood. He could fulfill that responsibility. But number two, it credentialed him in your eyes and mine. Here's what we learned when he walked amongst men. We learned he was merciful. We learned that he cared about us. He cared about us. Can I tell you a radical truth? Most people do not care about your problems. Most people don't care about my problems. Uh, Part of the ministry in the local church is bearing one another's burdens. And the Bible commands us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know why it commands us? Because we don't just do it. It's not instinctive. We must, through the work of the Holy Spirit, bear one another's burdens. Because, son, we live in a cruel, cold world. And most people, they will tell you they care. Uh, If it means getting your money or getting your vote, they'll, they'll promise you they care. But what have they done to prove it? Here's what we find in the testimony of the Lord Jesus. The fact that he walked in flesh amongst men, it proved that he's merciful. He didn't do that to become God. He was already God. He didn't do that. I I know, I understand he'll get glory from it, but you understand too that he had the ability to create infinite worlds of of of, of uh, beings without without volition without will without self determination that could have just sat around singing his glory all the time why did he do it why did he walk amongst men because he loves us because he cares about us we learned this that he was faithful you know why because we can look at the testimony of his life and see in it faithfulness there's a lot of people will be faithful when things go well they'll be faithful when things are easy Dr. Curtis Hudson used to say this, that nothing was ever done for God that counted with spare time and spare change. Faithfulness is really tested in times of difficulty. And no man ever went through a darker valley than the Lord Jesus went through. But you know what he was? He was faithful. There in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, he prayed. He said, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but thy will be done. He was faithful all the way up the road of Calvary, and he went a little further for you and I. He was faithful unto the end. And that reflects this truth. He took that upon himself because he desired to be a faithful high priest for you and for I. He wanted to fit and fill that role. And it's not that he lacked 
the ability. He didn't lack the quality. But he wanted the credentials that you and I might be able to look at him and have confidence in him. I see his compassion on the people. Then I see his reconciliation of the people. It says this, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Preacher, why, why did he come and robe himself in flesh? That he might bridge the gap between fallen man and holy God. Man couldn't get to God in and of himself. Questions asked in the book of Job, can a man by searching find God? The truth is no. No, we can't. Job had the right answer to it. He said, I wish there was a daysman betwixt us. I wish there was somebody that could get me to God. I'm glad to report to you, hey, there, there's one God. You can't just go to any God because there's only one God. You're going to have to, you're going to have to deal with Him because He is God. But I do have good news for you. There's one God, but there is one mediator between God and man. You say, preacher, there's this problem, my sin problem between me and God. What am I going to do with that? Can I ignore it? No, because He's God. Can I, can I go to another God? No, there's one God. But here's what you can do. There's a mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Hey, listen, John said this. He's the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And here's what he did when he robed in flesh. He came with a ministry of reconciliation. That's what Paul calls it in Second Corinthians, a ministry of reconciliation. Reconciling the world unto God. The world couldn't get to God. God had a heart for the world. But God is a spirit. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God the Father Himself could not even enter into the sphere of human interaction to procure that reconciliation. But here's what He did. He took the second person the Godhead who does have the capacity to be robed in flesh and He robed Him in flesh and sent Him to walk amongst men that there might be a witness and a presence of God on earth that hey, when man couldn't get to God, God came to man. I see the reconciliation and that's what He did and that's what He does. He's still reconciling us unto Him. Not just positionally, but practically. And now you're going to say, well, preacher, I'm already saved. Yeah, you are. But you and I both don't act like it half the time. And because of that, we allow things in our life that create a, a distance in our relationship with God. Say, so, preacher, what's Jesus doing? He's our faithful high priest at the right hand of the Father. You say, preacher, I, I'm going to stay close to God. Well, you're going to try, and I am too. But if we say that we have no sin, we lie and do not the truth. We deceive ourselves. But here's what we can do. If we do sin, if we confess that sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's still reconciling me to God on a daily basis. I see this, His compassion on the people, His reconciliation of the people. And then a final truth, verse 18, For in that He Himself hath suffered, being tempted, He is able to succor them. That's a good King James Bible word. We ought to use it more often. Secor, here, here's what it means. It means to comfort, to nourish. It means to, to provide for. He is able to secure them that are tempted. Here's what we see here. Preacher, why did he come? Well, he came to die. He came to destroy. He came to draw men closer. And here's what he does. We see his compassion on the people, his reconciliation of the people. But then we see his intercession for the people. We see this, that He is positioned at the right hand of the Father. And He has the mind of God. But He also has a heart for man. 
And therein is the ability for us as broken individuals to come to God and to pour out our heart, to pour out our brokenness, to pour out our failures. And whereas God shouldn't be able to understand them. You understand that, right? We understand things by experience. God has not experienced that. So He shouldn't be able to understand that. But because He robed Himself in flesh and walked amongst men, because He was tempted in all points like as we are. Now, lest you get the wrong idea, the Holy Ghost says, without sin. But He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly. Let us come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain grace and mercy to help in time of need, seeing then that we have a great high priest and apostle of our profession. Hey, let us hold fast that profession without wavering. Here's what I find in our text. I find even to this day, He's still making intercession for us. That work that began when He was robed in flesh in Bethlehem is still yielding blessings and benefits tonight in that I can go to Him and I have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of my infirmities. I can go to Him and He knows what I'm going through. He doesn't just observe it. He's able to feel it. And to understand it. I would say this tonight. You and I couldn't have a relationship with God without the incarnation. But can I just go a step further and make this closing comment? I wonder how many of us are not availing ourselves of the blessings of that truth and reality. Can I tell you the greatest tragedy of the Christmas season? Listen, it, it wouldn't be that you, somebody gives you an elf on a shelf or, or uh, tube socks. or That wouldn't be the greatest tragedy, all right? Uh, the greatest tragedy wouldn't be if they messed up and didn't air Rudolph, amen? The greatest tragedy would be for a child of God to go through the Christmas season with a high priest that went from Bethlehem to the right hand of the Father, fully equipped, to intercede for you and I and us to go through with sin in our hearts because we are unwilling to come unto Him. I can't think of anything less in keeping with the Christmas season than that we should keep Him at a distance when He went to such great lengths to draw us closer. What can I do, preacher? You can make sure you're close. And if there's something in between the two of you, won't you confess it? And He'll be faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you. Let's bow together tonight. Musician will come to the piano. The altar's open. I invite you to come. If God spoke to your heart about some matter in your life, some of the little ones have come. I love their boldness. They're willing to come right away. You say, preacher, well, some of them may not understand. Well, if just one or two of them does, we've done something real great. I think it'd be great if some of us that are older, if God touched our heart, if we'd just have that same humility come like a child and bow before Him to confess that matter before Him and ask forgiveness. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.